Hello everyone and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? The UK's premier RPG podcast and favourite EN World talk RPG podcast of 2020. I'm Gas and with me as usual is my good friend Baz. How are you doing Baz? Is the world treating you savagely? Uh, yeah mate, I'm, I'm like the wild die to your exploding die. That's a very good amount of white That's not bad is it? Off the top of my head. That's good, good. good ad lib, yeah. well done. Do you want to leave you shaken? <laughs> Shaken not stirred, maybe. Since the new bomb moves out, we have a special guest this time. You may know him from things like writing for God's Own Game Earth Dawn. You may know him from computer games like City of Villains. You may know him for Deadlands, for Savage Worlds, for many other things. Uh, we have with us the incomparable Shane Hensley. How are you doing, Shane? Hey, thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. So let's uh, let's get started with a uh, with one of the questions. Uh, uh, we have many, but uh, the first one I want to start with is about Deadlands. Now that's that's um, a setting about uh, the Wild West, but the Weird West, I think it's called. It's got zombies in there. It's got weirdness. It's got steampunk. It's got all kinds of stuff. And from listening to you and reading your stuff over the years, it seems you you tend to like putting in just lots of cool stuff in one place. Is was that the idea behind Deadlands? Do you think kind of like I like cowboys, but I also like zombies? And wait a minute, I like these other things as well. And they all just started piling in there. Is like is that where it came from? Kind of. Uh, I think, you know, as gamers, we're all infected by all the different media we consume, right? Games and movies and books and TV shows and just all the comic books, all these incredible things uh, we have at our fingertips. And, you know, guys, uh, I don't know how old you are, but, you know, coming from uh, the 80s and 90s, you know, there are, our selections were, were much slimmer than they are now. They were good, but nothing like they are today. So, uh, you know, when I started Deadlands, it was mostly Western horror. And very quickly, steampunk entered into it. I'm not sure exactly why, other than perhaps what you said before, that it, it was cool. And um, actually, okay, this is going to get a little weird. <laughs> so I wrote a novel for a game called Shatter Zone years ago by West End Game. Yeah, and in that novel, there is guys in power arms power armor gets torn to pieces with the guys inside it and that always kind of horrified me and I dwelled on it a lot going back any further even further where where I think I came up with that idea we used to go camping we'd have these ninja wars and stuff up on the, the mountainsides in Virginia where I grew up and at night we would, would cook our food over the fire right and one of my favorite things to do we had these little cans they're called beanie weenies okay they're just franks and beans and you put them on the fire. And if you didn't actually open the can first, they would explode. And the little hot dogs would be just torn to shreds. So somehow, <laughs> I told you this was going to get weird. Somehow the power armor in Shatter Zone reflected, you know, those, those early memories of being a kid and watching those hot dogs get torn to pieces by these exploding cans. And that kind of led to a fascination with the, the man and machine stuff, right? Like if I'm going to interact with these powerful devices, you know, what happens when things go awry? And that's very horrific. Deadlands was far more horror then at the beginning than it. Yeah, I think it's a little more Indiana Jones adventure to some degree these days, but you know, still horror is at its root. And uh, that whole, we can mess with the laws of science and we can make things that, that shouldn't exist yet, but there's a price for it. It's all a Faustian bargain, right? The hucksters, the black sorcerers, the witches, and even the, the steampunk stuff. 
I will make you regret asking these questions. <laughs> no, no, this is exactly what we're after. This is gold. This is good, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've heard the origin story of Dead Lands a few times from your mouth on other podcasts and so on, lesser uh-huh. podcasts, obviously. Uh, I'm fascinated as well. You've said before that, the, that one of the origins for Dead Lands was the, the artwork by Brom, that poster right. cover. Would you mind going back through that anecdote again for our listeners, please? Sure. So uh, I don't remember what year, probably about 94 white wolf magazine white wolf of course made vampire the masquerade as well they put the cover to what would eventually become necropolis atlanta on the cover of that magazine and they would hand them out for free at gen con so they handed me one and i just i just loved this this illustration you can find it easily online i'm sure but it's by brom b-r-o-m and it is um i thought an undead confederate but it's a vampire which is also in bed, kind of leaning against a rebel flag and guns crossed. And it's just, it's a very, very awesome piece of art by Brom. I had recently watched the outlaw Josie Wales, you know, the, the classic Clint Eastwood movie. And these images were, were in my mind, right? So as I was driving back from Gen Con, which was about a 16 hour drive, I couldn't get the thought of, of that image out of my mind. And I had this, this other image that went with it of this hand coming up out of a graveyard at Boot Hill. And I was thinking, what was so important to this guy that he fought off death or came back from hell or whatever he did to, you know, to come back to, to earth. And that's when it, I just started kind of layering in all these ideas that would eventually become the four horsemen and the reckoners and fear levels and all this kind of stuff. And then I invited uh, Matt Forbeck and Greg Gordon down to my house in Virginia at the time. And they came in and they contributed a bunch of great ideas from all of that deadlands was born. And then many other freelancers and companies that have tried to license it to make TV shows and computer games and all kinds of things that haven't happened yet added even more really cool stuff to it. Hmm. I, I like that you haven't, you've just sort of said it hasn't happened yet. There's still hope then that we might get something. Right? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, we've got deals on the table all the time, right? And um, some of them have been okay and, you know, they would have been cool. And when we were, you know, 10 years ago when we were, starving and didn't have any options you know we would have taken them these days we're much more picky but uh, we have some great people working on it and there's you know real names attached to especially like a, a movie or tv show we actually showed a secret clip at our 25th anniversary party in deadwood uh last august from uh, a pretty big name you know we swore everyone there to secrecy expecting them not to but they did <laughs> <laughs> we actually kind of wanted it to leak but we're just waiting on funding from a studio. You know, we, we get we get all the ducks in a row, but somebody still has to write that big check. And that hasn't happened. Not to us, you know, for the for the feature or whatever it's gonna be. Yeah. That hasn't happened yet. But we've got you know, all kinds of irons in the fire and any day now it could come true. You know, we get into the holidays now, so nothing will happen until about February or March. That's the reality of it. Mm-hmm. I've been through it so many times now. I'm pretty confident something will happen in the next few years. Yeah. Whether it's any good or not, you know, <laughs> yeah. a lot of factors there. I think there's a lot of stuff in geek culture that's coming out, you know, shows like The Witcher and Game of Thrones and all that are making yeah. more of this kind of stuff viable. And then I noticed Dennis Detwell has got his godlike license, he's kind of like coming through for an animated series and that. So I think it's all coming. That's that's yeah. all good for us, I think, as geeks. That's the sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So just to swing back to Deadlands, one of the memories I have, now you'll have to correct me if I've got this wrong, but the system originally was quite um, variable, shall we say. You could roll any, a number of different sized dice and then right. slide to poker hand and then you know uh-huh. it, it could be quite um, involved. And you sort of transitioned to Savage Worlds, which 
uh, made things a lot more streamlined, kept a lot of things like poker chips and cards, uh, mm-hmm. but just was um, a lot more streamlined, easy to play, elegant system, if I may say so. And I seem to remember at the time, as you, you, were, as, as you were doing it, you produced some designer blogs as well to talk about why you were making the changes and the decisions that you were. And I thought that was quite a, well, a brave decision. I'll say that, you know, it, it was showing transparency. You kind of almost put your hand up and went, look, guys, we've got this system, but it's just not working for anybody. Like, I know that, you know that, uh-huh. let's make something new. So like, what sort of drove you to make that decision to be so, so, so open and honest about what you were doing and, and include everybody in that journey, if you will? I guess that's just kind of who I am generally. And I find that, at the, at the time, you know, there wasn't so much internet feedback and, you know, instant criticism of, you know, everything you do. These days I do it because the more people understand, the less likely they are to just, you know, go off railing on you and tell you what a horrible person you are because you capitalized a term or something. Right. At the time, I guess there were probably multiple reasons. One, again, it's who I am. I'm a roundtable designer kind of guy. You know, I'm, I'm happy to throw up really dumb ideas and not feel like I look stupid because when you when you get a, a roundtable of people talking about ideas, if everyone's afraid to throw out dumb ideas, you wind up with the least common denominator idea at the end, right? And I've, I've had that in some computer game companies that I worked with, and it, it just sucked. But, you know, we have a very comfortable group. We can say, here's some dumb ideas. And once you put all those together, sometimes some really cool nuggets come out of them that you, you know, you synthesize together in something bigger and better in the end. With the original Deadlands, I I had two goals. One was to use all these damn dice I'd collected over the years. (laughs) (laughs) That happened. (laughs) That happened. (laughs) And the second was to simulate that chunky thud of every bullet hitting like in the outlaw Josie Wales or one of the Clint Eastwood spaghetti westerns right and tracking every single shot like that and how fast a guy was and so on was was critical to that system and it and it worked it was just clunky right but every bullet felt chunky it felt like a thud well that's fine but then when you move into hell on earth or other you know anything else you do with it or like gatling guns or anything where there's you know a large rate of fire now there's vehicles and explosions and magic and you know seven different magic systems for deadlands classic depending on what you were it's just too much right so we had a miniatures game called the great rail wars in 98 that did very well and we loved it and one of the things we're really proud of is women played it a lot too which was pretty unusual for a miniatures game at the time, but they did, they loved it. And we thought, you know, this system's got all the things we like about what we tried to do with, with Deadlands to some degree, or, you know, some, some more, some less, but it's really fast and easy. And I ran, uh, I ran some weird war two stuff with it before that ever came out. I ran some game of Thrones stuff with it. I ran a, uh, a weird wars wilderness war where we were British officers trying to trip through the, the forest fighting uh, French uh, de bois nice. and Indians. And so it was just really, you know, fun and neat. And we all said, this, this is good. We liked it. And, you know, we took that, made it, added some things to it. And Savage Worlds is what came out. Which is, um, is now a kind of an, almost a veteran game, isn't it? How long has Savage Worlds been around, Shane? Since 2003. Wow. So it's pushing for, pushing for 20 years now. And it still feels yeah. fresh. It still feels, to me, the 90s feel like last week, basically. So, <laughs> me too. <laughs> so it still feels like a new game. But it's really, it's blazed a trail. And there there can't be that many games that are still very much alive, very much being played 20 years down the line, nearly 20 years down the line. You can't have ever thought Savage Worlds was still going to be a thing in 2021. 
I guess I don't think like that. I just make what I want to make. And I hope that other people like it and we can sustain a business. And that has fortunately mostly worked out. Not always, but mostly. That's a, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, it's a flattering point. It's wonderful. I'll tell you why I think it is. One of the things that we lucked into or were smart about or however you want to think about it with Savage Worlds, I played a lot of GURPS and I loved GURPS. Mm-hmm. It had two issues that I kept running into for the kind of games I wanted to play. One was the power level. Like we played some GURPS supers. And since you always want to roll low, there's, there's just a cap there, right? You just, you know, having a 32 strength didn't really matter much more than an 18 strength for some things. So for that reason, you know, I knew we wanted to go high, right? Having dice that ace or explode, as people say, uh, is exciting, right? You roll it and you roll it and you're all like, woo! You're the loud table at the convention. And that's, that's what I want to be. Even when you told them they hit about 10 minutes ago, they're still rolling because they, <laughs> they're going that's for right. the world record. Right, right. And that's fun. That's a good thing to talk about, too, real quick. I'll come back to it. But the other thing with uh, GURPS is it would have new skills and uh, edges and hint, uh, what was there, uh, drawbacks and Hurts advantages and, and disadvantages. And that's it. Yeah. But what it didn't have was setting rules. And it kind of sort of did sometimes. But setting rules, I think, is where we really make every game we put out feel fresh. So we were playing uh, Savage Return to the Tomb of Horrors last night <laughs> using stuff we're working on for the Fantasy Companion and some of the things we did for Savage Pathfinder. And those little tweaks to certain things, uh, like how you recharge PowerPoints and you know just, just core little tweaks change the game so much, changes your character's behavior and what you do and the decisions you make. And I think that's, that's some of the secret sauce that, that we've had success with. The acing thing, uh, I want to talk about real quick, because both in the original Deadlands and Savage Worlds, I I have uh, players at my table who are very boisterous, and I have some who are very quiet. So when we play a narrative game like a Fade or a Powered by the Apocalypse or something, those are fun, and we enjoy them. But the quiet players don't really get the spotlight like all of us loudmouths do, right? No matter how much we try to, to kind of pull them out. But in in a game with exploding dice, and it could be in you know, a Savage Worlds or others, sometimes that person who's maybe a bit more of a a bit more reserved starts getting those aces and blowing the dice up and does something really super cool, right? And suddenly the spotlight shines on them and they just get to feel great about it without having to tell a big story or act like they're the most persuasive character in the world or whatever, right? And that has been a, a really great thing to see to help kind of bring those players out of their shell a little bit and feel great about, you know, their experience at the table. Neat idea. One of the mechanics I want to ask about, because I like it, but some people don't, and I, I, I want to kind of get your pitch on it to try and sell more people on it, is the shaker mechanic. So that's kind of like, I explain it as the start of Saving Private Ryan, where Tom Hanks and the others kind of hunker down between behind the tank traps, and there's that boo sound, and, you know, everything's uh-huh. really sure what's going on, and someone's shouting in the face, but they can't hear the words. It's that kind of like hungry now. You've not been wounded. You're just out of it for a little bit. But I think some people get a little bit um, of cognitive dissonance around, well, I've not been wounded. Why can't I act? Why do I have to do this other thing first? And I try and get people to explain to me what their character is feeling like or, or doing to be shaken because that then has a narrative element to it. Is that, is that sound of approach you take or how would you sell it to people? Yeah, I, I would have a very broad approach though. If you watch... Uh, like combat footage, real honest-to-God combat footage, or people who are being shot at, or any sort of really dangerous situation. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the time, the first thing they'll do is you know shirk back or something, right? That's shaking. 
right? Um, being in a rap battle and the guy lays down a really good line on you and you can't respond because you're just like, ah, that's shaking. Uh, a shot that creases your hat might shake you, right? Anything that causes you to delay or pause a moment, even like a lot of times, I, I, I really do just try to vary it up, but you know, somebody shoots at you and I'll say, well, you dive to the side. And when you do, you know, you bash your shoulder and head into the wall. Just no wounds, no fatigue, nothing like that, but you shake it. And it just, you know, almost certainly, unless you're already wounded, you're going to snap out of it, right? You just need a four. And that was a big change we made. And it's a good one. But what's, what's great mechanically is if you start stacking stuff up, if you make them distracted, now getting unshaken is much harder, right? So that's why tests are such a big deal now. And if you're trying to essentially shake hold a dragon or something big, right, you really want a team who's working together like that. So you make him distracted so he can't get unshaken so that another shaken might cause a wound and he can't kill you. You make him vulnerable so that your paladin or barbarian or whatever can run up and get that extra swing on him and go all and do a wild attack without quite as much worry about getting killed. And that's where that really cool teamwork aspect comes in. And some of that was inspired by Torg, which was a game I worked on for West End Games. And I think Torg does it better than anybody with the, the way the cards interact and so forth. It's a, it's a heavier system. Uh, I love it, but it is, you know, there's definitely more of a learning curve and there's the cards and all that kind of stuff. But that teamwork aspect, so you can play a support character and still be do cool stuff in combat. That's what's important to these kinds of games, I think. It's, um, it's, it's a real... It's a real thrill playing Savage because it, you, you started off by saying, I think we agreed it's kind, of, it's kind of an easy, light game in comparison to many others. But it's actually a game that takes a little bit of mastery as well. There's a lot you can do with the, with the things that are in there, the levers and buttons that you can push and pull really do make a difference. So my favourite thing about Savage is that it's not afraid to have game elements in it. And they actually really do matter and they trigger things in the story and things in the fiction. Like your example of like being thrown sideways and hitting your shoulder into the wall. Without that, it's just dice and minis, but Savage yeah, brings I'm, it to life. I'm so glad you feel that way because that's the design goal, right? And that's why I think one of the, the, the things we added in Suede is something uh, that the newest edition of Savage Worlds is something we had kind of done before but never really formalized, and it's been so important since we did it, and that's support, right? So when we say, hey, Ranger, uh, make your survival role to find the way through the forest, right? Everybody else could say, well, I'm going to support. So you've got the spellcaster. He says, well, I'm going to use a cantrip to support and provide extra light for the ranger. You have the rogue say, well, I'm going to watch the trees and make sure nothing ambushes us. You have the druid say, well, I'm going to look for critters in the paths they take and eliminate those, whatever they could come up with, right? It's all narrative. It's all in your head. It's just a die roll, as you just said, Baz. So I could just roll the dice and say, I give you a plus one. But, you know, a good GM will, will pull it out of you a little bit. Well, how are you supporting? What skill are you using? And that is just so fun and makes everybody feel like they're contributing and doing something, and they are. You talk there about pulling things out, and it's obvious from, from how you've been talking that you're still an active player and GM, and you like games oh, yeah. so much like all the rest of us do. So uh, how much do you kind of, like, put stuff into players' hands or try and make them tell you what's going on and how things look? Are you, a lot. Yeah. A lot, yeah, and especially like if it's the you know the final blow on something, I'll say, "Tell me how you kill him, yes. right?" Or "Tell me how you take him down," or that kind of stuff, and let them do it. And if they're not comfortable, you know, I'll take the reins. But yeah, I love to give them that spotlight. 
yeah, how, how does he die is one of my favorite <laughs> statements. I'm making, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Yeah, <laughs> but that's the thing. It's just what what Baz said again. Just to, to really hone in on that point, any die roll you do can be a narrative event, right? So, and sometimes you don't even need die rolls. So one of the things that I, I experimented with in a uh, Deadlands Dark Ages that we were playtesting not too long ago, there was an obstacle, and it was just a uh, a really steep gully they had to get across. There was no die rolls wound up being involved, but it was just how creative can you guys be about trying to get you know you and your equipment and the wagons and all these things across this gully, right? And it wound up being like 30 minutes of them, you know, kind of debating the best ways to do so. And as a GM, now it's your job to watch and make sure they're enjoying that trial, right? But it didn't need to be a dramatic task, didn't need to be a whole bunch of skill rolls. It just needed to be, well, how are you going to do it? And let them shine and show their creativity. And that's what's fun, I think, in any game. Yeah, for sure. I ran um, some stuff each of the week, actually, for uh, Grogmeet. Shout out to the Grognor files who run that. Uh, it's a Deadlands game of basically Magnificent Seven, but I, I centered the entire scenario basically around the mass combat rules. And just oh, wow. the, the first half of the scenario is you have to go and recruit from all these different factions and try and get your army together. And then the second part is this big battle with a stream of vermilion bayou zombies coming in a swarm towards you. And here's all their force tokens, and here's your little stack of force tokens. Because <laughs> you know, uh, what do you do? You just allow the players a bit of time to say, how do you set up defensive? Because players love right. talking about barricades and digging ditches and all the other <laughs> things they're doing. And then when you yeah. actually get into the round-by-round rolly dice, it's like, okay, you get to support the guy making the battle roll, but what is it you're doing? What's happening in the story? Exactly. That's exactly it. Mass battle is another great place for that, right? It's just a die roll to sum up maybe an hour of fighting, but tell me your story, right? If you roll really well, tell me how you plowed through the orcs, you know, swinging your sword left and right, and this happened and that happened and this happened. I'm like, cool, plus one. <laughs> yeah, that's <right. laughs> it's okay right it's about that memory and that that story that we tell together yeah it, it, it was good to me how the i've run this about three times now and every time the players seem to look for different skills to use every round as well right and like you say rounds like two hours or whatever but like the guy who's good at shooting would do that a couple of times and then like even he'd get bored and be like right what else can i be doing yeah i'm pretty strict about i mean something like a mass battle or whatever you, you kind of have to but like in quick encounters dramatic tasks i really push them to do different things each time and if they don't i, I won't i'll tend to make it harder i'll, I'll slap yeah. a penalty on there you know well, maybe a five is not good enough if you've just been doing the same thing over and over and over they react to that right the, the opponents do mm-hmm. so i push for that and i'm glad you mentioned about mass battles there was a thread recently on uh, on our uh, facebook group about a guy who who ran one and it didn't go well and that can happen right i mean it's it's a bunch of die rolls uh it really is in the interpretation and that's where i think what you said a minute ago that it's a simple system but it does require that mastery to interpret and push it in the direction you want it to go to be exciting for your group Right. So if they're getting their asses handed to them right from the start, what are you going to do about that? Right. Are you going to encourage them to come up with a plan? Things aren't going well, guys. You really need to come up with something different. What are you going to do? And if they say, well, I'm just going to fight again. I'm just going to do spellcasting again. Okay, let's roll. Mm -hmm. Right. But if they say, you know what, I've got I've got those connections in that town that we helped save two weeks ago. I'm going to send a courier and tell them we need help. Right. Okay. cool. Now I'm going to give you a bonus, whatever the the story is right yeah but it you're right it takes a little mastery to to handle that kind of thing but i i don't know of a game that wouldn't but that's why they're wide open there for you to do mm. shane can i can i take you back to gming a little bit um sure and 
one of the many innovations that came from Savage Worlds and Deadlands before that, for me, was the idea of a plot point campaign, which now, a couple of decades later, might not seem so innovative, but there was a time when that was that was a big new deal. I mean, there were so many innovations in Savage, and I think that one is often overlooked. That changed the way I GM campaigns utterly. Um, and 50 Fathoms, which I think was one of the first releases to come out for for Savage Worlds, if you don't mind me saying, I don't think has been beaten. It was a great shot out of the gate, and, I, and I've returned to 50 Fathoms more than once and use it as my template for setting up any kind of big story, big epic campaign. So would you mind telling us like where plot point campaigns came from? Sure. And thank you. That was very kind of you to say. Uh, 50 Fathoms was the second setting we did after Evernight. So I did Evernight, which is very, very linear. And I thought, you know, that's really cool, but sure would be nice if it was a little more sandboxy and they could kind of choose where they wanted to go and what they wanted to have. Uh, and then with 50 Fathoms, uh, one of the inspirations for plot point campaigns was Sid Meier's Pirates. So the old computer game, right? Because there's this thread about you having to save your sister, I believe it is. And uh, that story runs through the game no matter what you do, right? But you can go trade and sail and fight and explore and do whatever you want around it. And that fit very naturally into 50 Fathoms. There's a story going on. You still got to save the world. There are uh, minor stories going on where you just have to save an individual or get a treasure or whatever, right? Cool swashbuckling type stories. But, you know, the, the big fight against the sea hags, you, you got to deal with it at some point or, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's where that came from. And I think I, I've heard many times that people think 50 Fathoms is where we did it best. I think the pirate model fits that very well. Mm. It's harder to do in uh, in other other settings. So for example, Necessary Evil, which is one of my, you know, one of my other favorite settings. I just, I love it. love to play in it. The first one is very much reactive. You know, the heroes are told this is happening, go stop it. This is happening, go stop it. That doesn't have that same decision-making feel that I think gives you that freedom in 50 Fathom. Necessary Evil 2, I think does accomplish it because it's a scavenger hunt and you have a list of things you get, go do whatever you need to do. Right. Um, Solomon Kane has a pretty good one. Evil rises and you can seek it out and go deal with it. Although the, you know, the adventures themselves wind up being a bit more uh, linear once you get there. Uh, Horror at Headstone Hill that we did for Deadlands, I think does a good job of it. There is a, a particular threat that is it's coming for you, but there are all these other lesser things you can deal with in the meantime at, at your, you know, at your discretion. So it is really hard to design them. Uh, holler that I'm actually working on behind the screen that you're on <laughs> has a really cool one. You are trying to raise resistance to the big boys, which are the industrialists that have come in to take over the, the, the holler. And it's up to you, which it's, it's much like what you were discussing with your, uh, your deadlines game. You've got to go round up support, put the, the, the pieces together. And eventually there's, there's a mass battle on that one too, based off a real world mass battle. Do we approach games as having... I'm trying to think of the right ways, but like as big and brash, taking you back even further than Deadlands to sort of like Terror in the Skies, which we wrote for Earth Dome, which is one of our favourite old games. That involved, you know, a city on fire with these screaming, fire-breathing horrors shooting around the skies, and you know, ended with a some massive demon-like horror appearing and someone's having to read from a book, and the lightning shooting through sails, and big skyships are falling from, you know, like 
it's big bold stuff right you're not you're not one for doing like uh, you know there's just a couple of walks and you need to stop a cheat and it's got to be like more explosive and entertaining than that is that is that what you say that's a fair aspect to your writing i don't know because sometimes i certainly like to do that and i'll tell you about another one in a second but um i like the little stories too you know the one of the things with deadlands was we told the story of the reckoners and it was these big plot point campaigns right uh the flood last sons good intentions and stone in a hard place. But when we were done telling those big stories, we really just wanted to talk about the, the haunted house out on the prairie at the end of town and do that little thing that was creepier and a little more local. Right. And I love those just as much, but I am, I'm definitely not afraid to do big, crazy things. I think maybe the craziest might be the unity adventure oh, yeah. for hell on earth. So, there's a couple of things in there that, that uh, if you can't see me, I'm smiling now as I think about it. <laughs> so these, these great worms, think of, you know, like dune worms, we call them rattlers, pop up out of the ground and uh, the Air Force is, is uh, doing strafing runs on them and bombing them. And the worms suck up a horde of zombies and then spit them out like AA guns at the airplanes. <laughs> so that's, that's pretty nuts. And then there's a, there's a section in the unity people call it that scene where yeah. you have to do something <laughs> atrocious to power up the unity and get it to take you to, uh, to the faraway system where lost colony takes place. I, I don't know if I've topped that one yet. Cause that, that was a lot of fun, but I think um, TV shows do a lot of this these days, you know, like game of Thrones kill off, you know, big characters and you know, the, the boys does some crazy stuff that you're just like, what? And I think we can get away with that a little more these days. It's kind of interesting. I read a book called Interesting Men. I don't remember the author's name. But it really was about the evolution of stories, like all the way from Beretta and Hill Street Blues up through like Sopranos and Matt, uh, Breaking Bad and so on. And how you can tell these stories and you can have, you know, where we used to maybe have a bad guy who would last a season. They might introduce a bad guy now and you're like, okay, this is the guy I'm going to invest in for the next eight episodes. And they kill him right away and there's some bigger threat behind it and i think the lesson there is don't be afraid that you're at the end of your creative line you can always think of the next big cool thing to do right and in a in a world where we get our information and entertainment so quickly i don't think lingering on things generally is a good way to go but when you do do it, you know, do it right, build it up, and then make that payoff worth it. Uh, I think something that failed at that, I think, is The Green Knight. I mean, all the way to the end of that movie, I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be a hell of a payoff. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. Something big. And then it wasn't. And I was very disappointed. <laughs> and I'm the world's easiest critic. <laughs> so um, is, I, I was going to say, is, is there anything else happening in that kind of um – futuristic space because when the um, when lost colony and hell on earth and deadlands were, were coming out as, as reloaded and so forth me and baz and a couple of our friends like we basically had a big weekend on, on the playtesting scene we did we picked us like a genre each and we all picked one of the three timelines oh. and tried to get a, fl- a flow through it but the, the kind of futuristic element is probably one that's the least well served i would say out of the three is, uh-huh. is that a space is it just because sci-fi is not as interesting to you guys or is, maybe people don't respond as well to it or something uh, I would say that's my fault. I, I like historical horror stuff most. That's definitely where my, my heart is. Um, 
but we do have something really cool for Lost Colonies going to be starting. Hopefully in December, you're going to see a series of um, adventures that are going to form an event that takes place in Lost Colony. And then we'll, we'll do an actual play that, that follows that as well, like a week after. So uh, we are returning to it. The sci-fi companion is also in the works. And we will redo Les Parsec when we do that as well. It'll be, you know, suede compatible edition. And I think this time we're going to make it, um, you know, it was kind of an homage to Star Frontiers the first time. Mm-hmm. I think we'll, we'll, we'll keep that. I'm not going to fundamentally change it, but I think I'm going to add a few more elements to it that will make it a bit more pinnacle. Nice. I don't know if we'll call it supernatural or not, but something that will certainly serve that niche, right? Cool. Zombies yeah. are quite popular. I don't know if you've ever tried those in your <laughs> games before. <laughs> You know, I used to put on my business card, everybody loves zombies. <laughs> Have you heard this story before? Go for it. Okay. So I think Matt and Colville actually talked about it recently. I used to put it on my business cards because I said it all the time. And what I meant, it's, it's kind of a euphemism, right? For, especially at the time, the late 90s, a game needed to have some element of the fantastic to really kind of take hold and, and serve the escapism part of the equation that I think you know most of us are looking for in a game. And it also means there's more to do besides just talk and shoot. It means there's magic and everything else, right? Because if there's zombies, there's magic of some sort or another. So that's that's where that came from. And it was on my business card. <laughs> it served you well. It has. <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> Turns out you were right. Everyone does love zombies. <laughs> they do. So you've done a lot of uh, role-playing stuff, as we've mentioned. But... Ultimately, at one point, you, you moved into computer games. Was that due to like having to feed kids and keep a roof over your head, or was it? It was at the time, yeah. So after Fifty Fathoms and Evernight came out, and the original Savage Worlds, which I did because I just wanted to do them. Like I said, they were the games I wanted to play. I didn't think they'd sell particularly well. The D twenty open license was crushing, you know, most everything else. So Deadlands was was struggling. We released Tour of Darkness, the first Weird Wars book, which is a fantastic book. I like that book. Yeah, it's a great book. Really clever But it cover. didn't sell in at all. Hmm. And uh, I think one of the reasons it didn't sell was, was Vietnam, you know, in America that was still, I don't think it is so much these days, but it was still a, and we don't want to think about that kind of, of war at the time. And secondly, we didn't solicit it correctly. And I think that was the more important reason. So it sold really poorly. And we had a, a really bad business deal with uh, a company that was handling our, handling our sales and fulfillment. And I was just broke. And uh, we had some other stuff happen. No, it's, it was a whole lot of crap happening back then. But the end result was I was broke. And uh, at the time, my friend Jack Emmert worked on City of Heroes. And uh, Jack had actually worked for Pinnacle. He wrote some stuff for, for Hell on Earth. And uh, he said, you know, Shane, you're one of the few companies that ever actually paid me and you paid on time. I was like, okay, great. And I was thinking I probably went without that week because that's what we did, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I have many faults. This is not to just say I'm, you know, great, but I, I did not miss paychecks or monies that we owe to people, no matter what it took, right? Sometimes we were late, became late to, to where it would really hurt the person. I mean, like, you know, a week or two, not months. So, Jack invited me out to join the City of Heroes team, and I thought, you know, this is just not working, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go give it a try. And I did it, and I loved it. I, I loved everybody at Cryptic. It was a great place to be. The company shot through the roof at the time. We did City of Villains. Uh, I wound up doing some other things, but then I came back to it and worked on Neverwinter Online, which was a fantastic game. 
And somewhere in the meantime, Savage Worlds and Pinnacle started doing really well again. My buddy Simon Lucas, who's from Sheffield, uh, he ran it for a while and probably was the one that pushed it over the hump for us. Uh, production values and all that just went you know, way up from what I had done. And things caught on. And these days, you know, the, the happy result of all of this is I was able to work in computer games, work on some really neat stuff. Some that didn't come out, like Marvel games, DC games, and all kinds of cool stuff. But still got to do them and, and loved doing it. And Pinnacle grew and became something that can now sustain. There's five full-timers now, seven part-timers, and dozens and dozens of contractors and artists and freelancers and stuff. So we're happy. That makes you a big company in role-playing, right? I'd say we're, we're still pretty small. We, our output is quite a bit for that number of people. Mm. But I think like, you know, Ulysses Spiel that we do a lot of work with, they have something like 52 people. I think Paizo has like 150, wow. something like that. So, you know, we're, we're pretty small. Yeah. But and then we look Kick, good. Kickstarter made a massive difference to Pinnacle, I think, it's, and it's everybody else. Difference. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, there's been a couple of sea changes, right? When, when I started, it was, you go borrow money from friends, family, or fools. You print a bunch of stuff and you pray it sells. And you were lucky if the distributor paid you for it. So then Magic came out and all the distributors were flush with cash, but they only wanted to buy Magic, right? And D&D and Vampire and whatever the top two or three were at the time. So they did, they kind of moved to a just-in-time inventory. So they kept stock levels of Deadland stuff very low, but they always paid on time. But it just, just wasn't enough to keep us alive. And then the D20 boom and bust came, and that was a big sea change. And then Kickstarter. And the beauty of Kickstarter, it's not only that we make 100% of the retail price. That's a big deal, right? Because normally we only make 40% of that, plus we play the, pay the freight, plus we pay for returns, et cetera, right? But Kickstarter, we get 100%. We break even on the shipping as best as possible. Usually we lose a little bit, but we also get to make all these cool accessories. Like, you know, now we make, you know, these archetype cards and pawns and chase decks and all this other cool stuff that we just, we could not have made before. We couldn't have made them and we couldn't have sold them into retail, certainly not at 60% off. So that takes us more, that lets us sell more than just a book, you know, $140 book. It lets us sell five other things that bring the whole total price of the product up to maybe a hundred bucks or so. And, you know, nobody's got to buy them if they don't want them. Right. But, but they're cool. We put everything we can into them production wise and design wise. And now our return, because it's kind of a, it's a mental investment almost more than a financial one. You know, let's dig into Pathfinder and let's make all this cool stuff. And now we get a return back on a lot of the extra things we made for it as well. So that's huge. Right. The downside with Kickstarter, of course, there's, there's two big ones for us. One is you just can't run a Kickstarter every month. That's, that just wears your fans out. And we do like to do these big box sets that are kind of expensive, right? And, you know, how many times do we want you to switch settings and buy a new box set every month? We don't want to do that. We really want to do like one or two big settings a year from now on and then support our lines in between, which is what we're moving towards. So that's one issue. You can only do so many. And now, of course, they, they, they actually restrict you to three ongoing campaigns that you have to fulfill. And they say they're enforcing it, which I think would be good. But the other problem you have, we haven't had this with Pinnacle, but I had it on a Conan game that I tried to do with some partners. We licensed Conan from our friends at Conan Properties to do a pre-painted Conan miniatures game. And we were told 
that monolith game was a board game that would have some miniatures. Well, it came out and was a huge hit. They did tons of miniatures, right? More power to them. That's great. By the time we came out with our pre-painted miniatures, we didn't have near the range that they did. Our sculpts weren't quite as good. They were pretty good. And it turned out people just didn't really want a pre-painted game. So, okay, fine. That's what, another great thing about Kickstarter is you can find out before you print 5,000 copies and don't sell them, right? But we had this one guy who just hated us. He decided we were just trying to cash in on Conan and we didn't know anything about Conan. I know a lot about Conan. <laughs> and he just hated us, right? So he just posts, posts and posts and posts and posts and just kills the Kickstarter. And nothing he said was factually wrong. You know, it's your your prices suck. Well, that's that's your view. You know, we did the best we could. Just trying to cash in on Monolith's game. Well, no, but I, I can't dispute that, right? I mean, can't prove that he's wrong. So Kickstarter is not going to do anything to take it down. You know, if he'd said something, you know, inflammatory, they might've done that, but we can't control that conversation. And again, I want constructive criticism. We always do. We don't take things down willy nilly off our forums, Facebook or anything, but you have zero control. So if one guy just hates you, right, he can just destroy your project on Kickstarter. And again, haven't had it happen for Pinnacle yet, thank God, but it could. Right. Because when you don't want to go to a page for something you're excited about and then say, oh, man, look at all this crap in the comments. I don't want to get involved with that. Right. So that's why we've moved to other places. We now have it on our own site called Game Changer. And we have open forums there. People can say whatever they want. But if somebody just goes out of their way, you know, unreasonably, it's my choice if I want to boot. And he can go everywhere else and tell people, hey, Shane's an ass and he won't let me say what's so why he's so evil. He can go do that somewhere else. Right. That's that's a big deal. Yeah, there's always one, isn't there? Like whatever whatever you're doing, wherever you go, there's yeah. someone who thinks you're the worst person in the world. There is, and you know, the bigger the project, the more you'll get of them. I mean, in computer games, I got death threats, I got threats against my children, mm. all kinds of horrible stuff. People are terrible. <laughs> but Pinnacle fans, Pinnacle fans are pretty vocal in their support as well. I mean, I think I remember being on Pinnacle forums what is now a long time ago. I remember. I think. I think this is right, Shane. I think. I think I saw you once say that you had like the oldest domain name as an email address in gaming, or something like that. You may not ever remember saying that, but I think you had like an email address that pre- that preceded, I don't know, Noah's Ark or something. Well, <laughs> I don't know about my Pinnacle email because that's changed quite a few times, but my AOL account <laughs> is about forty years old. <laughs> exactly, and I, and I think the Pin- Pinnacle have always been happy to do that your your forums have been around a long time and pinnacle have always been happy to interact with the community build a community yep. have you know people like yourself would would be on there talking to the fans and and that was in a time when that was really really rare We're, we live in a golden age now where we can right. we can dial you up and we can record a podcast but believe you me in the 90s that wasn't possible on our side of the pond so you know being part of the pinnacle community felt like a big deal back then and it probably still does it does. And I, you're right. And, and we value it too. I mean, Clint Black has always managed the forums and he's just mm. fantastic there. And, you know, I think we've had the boot, you know, less than 10 people in 20 some years. Wow. Uh, Clint might correct me because he's the one that has to handle it, but it's not a lot. We mm. don't want to, you know, we're happy to, to have a, a real conversation with somebody, but you know, we can get back to the positive stuff in a second, but it's like every now and then somebody will buy a PDF from me, right. From our site. And it'll go to their spam or some glitch happens along the way. And they'll write this horrible email to the, to the 
to the awesome people that do our customer service stuff. There's, there's four of them. And it's just, you know, I can't believe you ripped me off. How is your company going for 20 years and you're just selling air to people? That's a good question, isn't it? How could we do that? <laughs> Maybe you should look in your spam folder. People just don't raise a lot. Right. And they're like, okay, I found it. <laughs> yeah. Do you still get people sending you emails saying, um, I think Deadlands Classic was a better game than Savage? What are you doing? Oh, yeah. They're people trying to convince you that, that you designed it wrong the second time. <laughs> well, it's usually something like, hey, Savage Worlds is great for some other setting, right? But yeah. I'll always play Deadlands Classic. And I'm like, well, more power to you. I don't really remember how to play it at this point. <laughs> <laughs> It does make me laugh when people ask at conventions, this is the original Deadlands. I'm, like, I'm not a maniac. I've got to explain this game to other people. Like, right. Oh. Yeah, I was running the first Hell on Earth adventure that came in the Game Master screen, and that's when I knew we were in trouble because there was APCs and <laughs> yeah. you know, laser cannons with ROF8 and all this crazy stuff. So, no. <laughs> yeah, and you're sorting out your poker chips into three different colors. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and getting the stats on our way to put them in is quite hard work. It's probably quite easy in America. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah, another good aspect of the forums, actually, is that you've got one particular thread that Clint just keeps locked that he answers official rule questions. Mm-hmm. And, like, every company and every game system should have that. And he's just like, only he can respond. And people ask a question, yeah. he goes, this is the answer. The end. Oh, Clint hates it when anybody else answers. <laughs> Me included. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's a really underrated resource for a game system that, like, you want, like, because if you go on D and D forums or whatever, it's just full of people thinking, oh, "I think it might be this." I'll check my book when I get home, and it's like, "Why are you even responding to this guy? You obviously don't <laughs> right. know the answer." <laughs> right. So to have a definitive resource where, if you've got questions, you can just go and say, "What's the answer to this question?" and Clint or right. someone equally high level can go, "It's definitely this." There you go. There's yeah, answer. and he, he's got such a great head for it. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty good at, at, at our, our rules. I mean, I wrote them. But Clint is just uh, hes just an expert at how they're going to interact with each other, especially over different settings and so on. And one of the really important things about having a thread like that is, so I think D&D 3.0 and 3.5, one of the things, I, I don't quite like the, the complexity level because they tried to have a rule for everything, in, in my opinion, right? And I still enjoyed them, still played them. But I think when you try to have a rule for everything, you can't and it means that you feel wrong when you wing it mm-hmm. so i i think i think your game system needs to have a common spine that allows you to easily wing things and feel confident about it as you go and i'm not sure we succeed there all the time but that's that's one of our goals right it should be easy to go okay well you've got uh, a gun in one hand and a, and a knife in the other and you've got two weapon fighting and this is how i'm going to do it and you move on right you know, really, you're just kind of looking to see if the guy blows up a bunch of aces anyway and then rolls well, good damage, and you'll get there. I always describe Savage Worlds as a toolkit system, and I think it's that kind of thing. I think, I mean, that's like the brief, the terse version of when I'm talking to people about it, but it's, it's you've got the bones you need to do whatever you want, and you, you can be pretty confident once you've like got a handle on the system to make something up on the fly, and it'll fit. It won't feel wrong. It won't feel jarring. It just kind yeah. of like... You know, generally a plus two or a minus two here and there, or someone shaking could cover a lot of ill. That's right, and and those rules are in there, right? I mean, if you look yeah. deep enough, you know how multi actions and two handed and all that kind of stuff they're in there. But do you, if you just want to get on with it, you'll get close enough that it's not going to matter. Probably, if it does, look it up. If it's important to you, absolutely. 
So I, I guess another one um, that I want to ask about because I get I get maligned for this all the time, and uh, now you've changed swades and say that you should give out more bennies. I'm, I'm having to change a habit of a lifetime. But back in the good old days of Savage World Explorers Edition, you should give out one or two per player per session. I was very happy with that. People complain <laughs> I don't get that enough. And now, now swade, it's like let them run through like sand through your fingers. Like what's all that all about? What, what's with giving everybody lots of bennies? Do you, do, do you love players all of a sudden? What's going on? <laughs> Well, I'm pretty brutal to my players, but this this is a great debate, and it, it, I don't know the right answer. I, I have played – so Tomb of Horrors, for example, that we're playing right now, Daryl is just a bastard. He will not give us bennies <laughs> to save our life, literally. So, you know, I had, I had my three at the start, and the only way we actually get bennies is by screwing over the other players, like pointing out a rule that they should have been <laughs> subject to or something. So he's just a bastard. So last night, uh, two of our characters actually died because we didn't have any bennies to try to re-roll a simple vigor roll to resist the sleep gas, sends the big juggernaut thing out after you. Me and my rogue and the paladin got squished. I play with uh, a guy named Ron who runs just a fantastic game up in Colorado. He has a five benny limit. You just can't ever have more than five no matter what. He'll give them to you freely, but you'll never have more than five. And then there's me. I give out fairly generously. Like when we do the charity games sometimes, uh, these are really fun. So, you know, we'll have a group of players and a game master and stuff, and people buy bennies for charity, and they can give them to the game master, they can give them to players, they can do whatever they want. And sometimes they'll have stacks, right? And what's interesting is, I, I don't know the answer to the question. I'll tell you, I'll give you some input and you decide for yourself. What's interesting is when a player has a lot of bennies, you'll see them spend them on silly things that are important to them. So, for example, one time I had a stack. I was playing a rogue. I like to play rogues and thieves. Uh, I was trying to open a chest that was trapped on the inside. And I knew what was inside wasn't much. But everybody was watching me. And by golly, I'm the thief. And I'm going to open this thing no matter what. And I just needed a six, right? But I just kept rolling horribly. And I spent like five bennies to get the chest open and, you know, without triggering the little trap inside and then stand there proudly and say, see, I'm the master thief. <laughs> I think where GMs get hung up about it is when players spend a lot of bennies to reroll damage to kill their big bads. And I sympathize with that a little bit. On the one hand, I think kind of like we were talking about before, I don't think you should be afraid to let your big bads get killed. You can, you can do the next thing, right? But, you know, you're still in one adventure and it's the dragon or it's the boss or whatever. And we've addressed that with a couple of other options. One is the, the, uh, the wound cap, the four wound cap. So that makes it so, okay, well, I just did seven wounds to this boss. There's no way he's going to recover from that. Well, you did four. He's only got a roll of four and he only will take the three. Still bad but it's, it's only three. And uh, the other way we've addressed it, we did this in um, Pathfinder and Rifts, and in Supers, there's a, 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 an even more generous rule for it, but we make them unstoppable. And that means that no matter what you do, they can only take one wound per attack. And that's, the, you know, it's a GM's choice when to use it, but it, it makes it so that, you know, fighting that dragon is going to be, it's going to take a bit, right? The dragon's a a huge creature with six wounds or something. And, you know, you're, it, you're not going to kill it all in one, one fell swoop. And I think those are, as you mentioned earlier, it's a toolkit, right? So these are knobs and levers we can kind of adjust to, to change those aspects of the game. And Benny's play a really important part of that. So 
if that dragon is unstoppable that we know we got to fight, having a lot of bendies is probably a pretty good idea because he's already got a high toughness. You know, it's going to take multiple rounds. He's going to be killing people in between. I've got to soak damage and do damage. I've got to hit, yada, yada. If it's uh, an investigative style adventure, well, those bennies are going to be made for persuasion roles and to find evidence or to research clues, things we want them to find anyway. And if they're spending bennies, then they're feeling proactive about it and they're not just subject to the whims of the dice. Mm. So I think the scale depends an awful lot. Maybe this is why there's no coherent answer. depends an awful lot on what the game you're playing is and, and the style, high adventure, mystery, horror. You know, I would tend to probably limit them in horror. I, I want you to be a bit more of a victim both yeah. to fear tests and damage and so on. You're not getting any short answers out of me, are you? No, well, that's good. <laughs> we didn't did want a 10 minute podcast anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one of the one of the levers you've sort of touched on there for Savage Worlds is having uh, setting rules. So I do like that in Savage, uh, in Deadlands rather, there's like your know, critical fails, you can't bend those. I, I like that there are occasions where you can have 10 bennies if you want, but if you roll Snake Eyes when you're using your infernal device, Something bad's going to happen. That's just that's the way right. it is. You're going to have to suck it up. And that's now. all savage rolls now. The critical fail, of course. Yeah, yeah. you can't. You're, you're just screwed. That's that's what got another person killed last night. In fact, <laughs> but those are fun too, right? You make a story out of it. Those those are the memories. You 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 don't tend to remember. Well, I you know succeeded with a five. You remember a critical failure, or I got a thirty-seven. Right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But but you, but your rules break the laws of physics anyway, because I believe. <laughs> You only need a four, and I've looked at some of my dice, and they've got more than six sides, but it doesn't seem possible sometimes. Uh-huh. <laughs> no matter Modifiers, what. right? Yeah, and then Gaz, Gaz is my GM, and he'll give me the old sunk cost fallacy and go, well, you spent one, Benny. You might as well spend another, right? I do love taking Benny's off players. I don't like giving them out. I do love, oh, well, you might as well roll another one now. Yeah. Yeah, it's a one-way system, I tell you. <laughs> I think that's where the – I think it's hard luck, the setting rule, where the GM – gets the bennies that the players spend. Ah, oh, must have a lot. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that was our, our Portuguese translators came up with that one. That's the way they do one of their settings, and they just love it. So, you know, every time the guy wants to spin a bennie, he's like, I don't know. <laughs> Shane, on your settings, um, Savage is certainly, amongst many other things that you've done, Savage has always gone out to get what I would call very interesting settings, Quirky, quirky IPs that maybe not everybody always thinks of. You, you've had settings for stuff I've genuinely never heard of, as well as some really big things like Pirates of the Spanish Main when that was a really big deal, and mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. What what are the IPs that you know? If you had, you could wave your magic wand. What are the IPs you would love to savage if you could have anything, do anything? What would it be? Savage Torg? Where would you go? No, I wouldn't do Torg actually. I think oh, Torg okay. is. It's perfect as is. I, I love it. And there's a huge stack of boxes back here on my shelf. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but Thundar would Ooh. be my number one. Thundar the Barbarian, if you ever saw the cartoon. Did you see that in England? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd love to do Shadowrun. I think that'd be fantastic. Those are really kind of the last two on the list of things that I'm just, you know, I think about constantly. The other things that are on my mind are, are original ones that I haven't, haven't put out yet. And some that we've hinted at, like um, Abyssal, is in the mini settings book in the the Essentials uh, big box that we did. And it's kind of a uh, Johnny Quest versus uh, meets Sea Lab kind of mashup with a a pretty cool twist. I think it's pretty cool. Okay. 
Yeah, because the, the thing about the savage settings I was like is there was always a twist. Now sometimes that twist was there was a zombie that seemed to happen a lot, <laughs> as we, which we mentioned. <laughs> but, but the idea, but the savage settings were always just a little because Deadlands isn't a just a Wild West game. You know, Lost right. Colony isn't just a a science fiction game. There's there's always something. There's something that's a, that's a, a little bit more innovative in the game. So yeah, so I can't wait to see what you're going to do with more settings down the line. Well, thank you. I, I think um, I think my main trait, and I don't know where this came from. I mean, certainly the struggles of business in the early days might have informed some of this, but I did it before then, so I don't know. I like worlds where the heroes have already lost. Mm. Now, what are you going to do, right? So, Evernight, you know, you start very Greyhawk kind of flavored campaign, and then very quickly. It's Evernight. It's things are bad. Okay, you've lost. Humanity's destroyed. What are you going to do? Hell on earth. Fifty fathoms. The world is already flooded. You already blew yeah. it. You know, you missed you missed the big ending of the last movie, and now you're in this one. What are you going to do about it? So, uh, Deadlands even is you know the reckoning's here. Already happened. What are you going to do? And I, I, I guess it's the old you know how many times you fall off the saddle proverb, right? It's uh, what makes a great hero. That I and I guess this intrigues me is you know how do you face failure? How do you face that kind of adversity? So people used to say my worlds were really dark because of that, and I would say yeah, that's why you you, know, you rage against the dying of the light, right? I think in modern terms, my settings aren't particularly dark. There's there's so much darker out there, but that's what I like. I like it really difficult. I like you to struggle. I like for the odds to be against you. That's why I'm not as excited by you know vanilla fantasy worlds and sci-fi stuff. Unless you know there can be a story in there that's that's super interesting, but I like the setting to have it baked in as well. So this is this is a question we asked most of our guests actually. Is there anything of anybody else's out there at the minute that you're excited by, or anything that you're playing of anybody else's, or did you really just focus on your own stuff? Really, you've got so much going on, you don't get much chance to. To shop around. Well, I I play everything every chance I get, and I typically do it at conventions, which has been hard for the last two years. For example, I played uh, Cartel that Magpie Games makes uh, using the Powered by the Apocalypse engine. I played that with their curated games. Uh, if you don't know, you can actually uh, pay to play in a curated game where the game master actually is paid to run the game. You sign up on their site and you play. That was fun. My friends, let's see, my son actually ran a 5e campaign for us. That was a blast. We played Tomb of Annihilation. That was almost two years ago now, but we played the whole thing. That was a lot of fun. I would play Warhammer any day of the week, tabletop, RPG, uh, minis game, whatever. I I love Warhammer, love the world. So, yeah, I, I play a lot, and I play computer games as well, but... Mostly, you know, the the regular game every week is either board games or Savage Worlds. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. You, you touched upon Warhammer there, which Warhammer's got a big resurgence. Maybe you did mention uh, as we were warming up that you might have a Gaz Workshop story. Oh yeah. Okay. So Gaz is in Nottingham, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So years ago, I made a game called The Last Crusade. John Hoppler designed it. We published it. It's a World War II collectible card game. It's a brilliant game, John. I didn't design it, so I can say that. Just brilliant. John's a fantastic designer. Mm -hmm. So we pitched a 40K version of that game to Games Workshop. And I flew over to England. I think I did some other stuff too, but I went to Nottingham, went to the, you know, saw the big Space Marine in the parking lot, Mm -hmm. went inside the bar, and uh, we were having lunch in Bugman's Bar, 
with uh, Rick Priestley and my buddy Simon and somebody else, I can't remember who. And we had a beer, we had something to eat, it was great. And you know, if you haven't been in Bugman's Bar, there are uh, all kinds of, it looks like it's in the world of, of Warhammer, right? Mm-hmm. To some degree. And there are stuffed heads and things on the walls. One of the stuffed head was a, a big orc with its big tusks. So we had finished eating and I stood up and the tusk scraped me down the side of the face. <laughs> and my host looked at me kind of terrified, right? A, because it was a big bloody injury. And two, probably because I thought, oh my God, it's an American. He's going to sue. <laughs> <laughs> not unreasonable. But I'm just, <laughs> right, not unreasonable. So I'm just kind of standing there and I, I look and I, I figure out what's going on. And I'm like, I just got gored by an orc in Bugman's bar. <laughs> I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Now, Gary, I have a question for you. I was taken to, and, and my memory may be all wrong here, so I'm going to tell you my memory and you, you correct me. I was taken to a bar that I was told was one of the oldest in the world, if, if certainly in England, I think. The old trip to Jerusalem. Yes, and it was a crusader bar, right? right. And What's it called again? The old trip to Jerusalem. Yes, that's and it. It's got the Thor at the start, so it's like ye, those people were mad. Yes. It's actually the Okay. Old, yeah. So inside, now I don't know if they were just taking the piss <laughs> or or if my memory's wrong or what, but there was a model ship hanging in the tavern, and I was told that if you touch it, you die. So they have the Cursed <laughs> Galleon. They have, it, they have it in a glass case now above one of the sidebars, yeah, so that nobody can touch it, because if you touch it, you are cursed. So, that's, so I'm correct. That was... It's called the Cursed Galleon. Yeah, um, yeah. it's in a glass case now, just out of reach. Fantastic. Yeah, it was hanging when I was there. Did you play the ball in the ring game as well? There's like a hoop and a rock that you've got to like throw against the wall yeah. and swing it so it lands on a horn. They probably <laughs> kept you away from it. Have you seen the gore mark down the side of your head? You can't, <laughs> probably. You can't risk it. <laughs> <laughs> probably. Well, I'm glad you uh, you confirmed my memory of that. That was that was a great trip. I loved it. <laughs> Despite the head injuries. <laughs> Let us know if you come over again. We'll, we'll do it all again, yeah. Excellent. So, uh, yeah, uh, just before we wrap up then, because I think we're about time, is there anything that you're um, working on at the minute that you want to share with our listeners? Any cool stuff upcoming from Pinnacle yourself that you want to kind of shout about? We've got all kinds of cool stuff in the works, but we're kind of in a catch-up period. The pandemic didn't affect us on the design side so much. But a lot of our shipping has been delayed, so we're waiting on things that should have been in already, like Moons of Mongo for Flash Gordon, the next Rifts book, for example. Pathfinder is not going to make Christmas that we had originally planned on. So we're all kind of in catch-up mode on those things, fixing up the Superpowers Companion based on uh, feedback, cleaning up the last bits of holler before that goes out. So we're, we're kind of in, in that mode. But stuff that's coming on the horizon excuse me, that we've talked about is Deadlands Dark Ages, for example. We hope that, we, we think that's going to be our big summer release for next year. Got a, a plan to support all of our lines a little better because, you know, if we were smart, I would probably just do about five different, maybe three different lines, you know, Deadlands and a couple of big licenses or something. But I love all of our lines and we're small enough that I, I, get, to, I get to do it anyway. I'm going to make rippers. I'm going to make last parsec. I'm going to make the things I want us to make. That's it's why I do it. What I do want to do though, is, you know, somebody buys into this box, big box set for lost colony and then doesn't see any support for two years. And I don't, I don't need to overwhelm them with things to buy just to be buying stuff, but I want them to have those extra cool things that, you know, we make for them and, and 
and makes them feel like the game is still alive and we haven't forgotten. Right. So we're working on that. But I think, you know, probably Deadlands Dark Ages is the big one that we have announced and talked about. Finishing up the Companions is a big one so that, you know, you can run whatever game you want to run your your world at your house. And then hopefully, you know, some of these crazy Hollywood or computer game things will come come true and you'll get to, you'll get to see those. And you got to write that game you were doing about the, uh, the Cursed Galleon in the glass jar in the old pub. I do, I do. <laughs> we'll have to work that into rippers maybe you should yeah. I've got some bad sight in the pub as well some NPCs I think be good yes I love it excellent brilliant well it's uh, it's about time for us to let you go then it's been uh, a joyous hour and we'll have to get you back on again sometime again Shane to, to tell us more stories of being gored by orcs and other cool gaming adventures I've got them <laughs> good man Shane thanks for giving up your Thanksgiving for us as well oh this was a blast I appreciate it <laughs> cheers man